1794, January, February, March. Three months in which the French Revolution's radicals see enemies everywhere. General purging is put on the agenda officially. The French military machine takes decisive steps to improve itself. It's a very big deal. It's we're moving toward modern warfare. The French have the luxury of having multiple armies. They have so many soldiers. And the colonial world is rocked by news that the National Convention agrees to abolish slavery in Saint-Domingue. A rainbow of reactions, but none of them sort of weak. Uh, all of them explosively strong. I'm Alexander Stevenson, and this is episode nine of the Napoleonic Quarterly, covering three months in which Robespierre acts against his own. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period three months at a time. And for the three months covered by this episode, I'm joined by Christy Picicaro, David Andres and Rafe Blaufarb. And joining me once again uh, to provide expert commentary throughout are Charles Esdale and Alex Mikabaridze. Charles, it's been literally weeks since we last spoke, but I've... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've, I've missed you lots. So, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm 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 fine. Um, busy on other projects um, apart from this, but but very much looking forward to getting back into the swing of things. 1794. Here we come. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Alex, thank you very much for inviting me on your excellent symposium, the the Masena Society's symposium. It was a blast to speak with those fellow podcasters, and that was. And thank you to the Asian Napoleon podcast for for hosting that discussion yes uh, uh, thank you for participating i think it was a great success and we had charles there deliver uh, the keynote address uh uh, sharing his uh, thoughts about napoleon so one thought that i i was strongly tempted to include but decided not to um a few years ago uh, somebody on facebook facebook put up a post saying you know which historical person would we most like to have dinner with? So I, so I put up Josephine Barney, so I'd have the pleasure of cuckolding Napoleon. <laughs> and, and, and this, this rather woke female <laughs> said, said, only dinner was an option, so I, I put madam. With La Barney, <laughs> it was never just dinner as an option oh boy oh boy i mean you're conjuring i <laughs> i didn't expect the napoleonic quarterly to, to find itself in such a devastating cul-de-sac so quickly <laughs> but you're conjuring terrible images not too much napoleon bonaparte in this episode um or indeed in this season but 
uh, I've got a feeling that um, Napoleon Bonaparte will be somebody who will be discussing before the end of season two. In the meantime, here's the headline developments for this quarter. We're starting off with January, February, March 1794. And in this quarter in French politics, what we've got is a growing divide opening up between radical Saint-Culotte types, especially Jacques-René Hébert and his followers, and the moderates, the indulgence led by Danton and co. First one group and then the other end up being rounded up by the end of March. There's not much actual fighting in this quarter, but both sides are using these winter months to prepare their coming campaigns. The Allies with their eyes on Ypres in particular, and the French reshuffling their generals. Jean-Baptiste Jourdain is to command the army of the Moselle and Charles Pichegru the army of the north. And in the south, Napoleon Bonaparte is appointed to command the artillery and General Dumobion's army of Italy, which is gearing up to take on the Piedmontese along the coast from France. While the army of the Eastern Pyrenees is also very much preparing to go on the offensive and take the fight to the Spanish. Lazar Carnot issues his amalgam on army conduct with the aim of shaking up the way the French military operates. In the Caribbean, the British under Vice Admiral Sir John Jarvis capture Martinique and on Saint-Domingue, Toussaint Louverture, who had been helping the Spanish consolidate their control over much of the north, begins to switch sides, encouraged by the National Convention in Paris's confirmation that the French are happy to abolish slavery in the colony. So that's the situation overall. Um, a lot to talk about now, but as we look ahead to prospects for 1794, this feels like three months in which both sides, the French and the Allies who are taking them on, are trying to sort of put aside what's gone so far and trying to find fresh ways to prosecute the war. Is that about right, Charles? Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, very much so. You have you have certainly uh, all sorts of debates in the Allied camp about the best way to respond to this very serious French military challenge. Um, there are attempts to uh, reinforce uh, the troops at the frontiers. I mean, on, in, on the southern front, some Portuguese troops arrived to reinforce the Spaniards in Roussillon. Um, so, yes, I mean, both sides are preparing for future military action um, and also waiting the winter out. And Alex, what would you say is the situation in Europe more generally as a whole, if we, if we sort of zoom out and not so much Western Europe, but, but the, the entire continent, what is the state of play in this three months? Oh, the, uh, anxiety probably will be one word to describe it. Anxiety over um, many, many issues, not the least the continued success uh, of French revolutionary forces to defend uh, the French territory from the invading coalition force. And uh, more crucially, if you ask me, the anxiety of the uh, state of uh, affairs in Poland, uh, which will be soon enough uh, partitioned once more. Aaron, of course, isn't it in this quarter, I may have missed something out here, that there are developments in Poland that we mustn't forget about as well? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, if you ask me, those developments are uh, equally uh, as important as any development in France at the time. And you, you properly, you know, correctly pointed out that uh, while political uh, events in France are quite important and the gradual radicalization and the destruction of these revolutionary forces in, in Paris, Danton and others, militarily, uh, there are no pronounced uh, engagements uh, as opposed to Poland, where... In late March of 1794, uh, Tadeusz Kościuszko uh, raised the banner of rebellion against uh, the uh, 
Russian intervention and the Polish magnates have supported it. Well, let me ask you, Charles, Kosciuszko, I mean, who was he? I thought this whole Poland situation was done and dusted. The Russians had rolled through the Polish forces um, in 1792 and, and, and that was that. But but here, clearly, there's, there's another chapter developing. Uh, Alex, you're a stout fellow, but how naive you are sometimes. The Polish situation is never done and dusted. <laughs> and I don't believe it ever will be, given given Poland's most unfortunate geographical situation caught between Germany and Russia. Um, joking aside, and, and do forgive my te- my teasing, my dear fellow. No, no, not at all. Essentially, Kosciuszko um, was a Polish army officer um, in 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 the period um, it's sort of in the period of the of the Polish Revolution. He had fought in the American Revolution. Um, and in, in fact, is a, a, an Amer- American national hero alongside uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, OK, he, he, he was in Poland. Um, he fled into exile following the events of 1791. Ends up in France, experiences the revolution at first hand, goes back to, to Poland and takes a leading role in organising what was effectively a, a military coup, which initiates the, the, the Polish uprising, the Great Polish Uprising of 1794, when the, the radicals who had been behind the constitution of 1791, um, they, take, they take over. They say, right, you know, we are going to have this new constitution we are going to have a powerful independent Poland and we are going to fight back against the Russians and restore Poland's independence. I think one way we can look at Tadeusz Kosciuszko is, to borrow a more recent political slogan, is he wants to make Poland great again. Uh, and uh, that is a particularly pronounced sentiment in the wake of Grodno Sejm, which was organized by Russians uh, and their Polish stooges in the fall of 1793 to partition Poland in the second so-called second partition in which Russia took some 100,000 square miles of Polish territory in the east. Prussians claimed about 23,000 square miles in the uh, west. Uh, And uh, Kostyushko, like many uh, patriotic-minded Poles, found this distasteful, sounds that humiliating, and they were willing, as Charles put out, uh, pointed out, to stand up and resist. And hence why, in March, he issues that call for an uprising, that Poles have to uh, unite and resist this foreign encroachment. One thing that, that needs to be um, tackled here is the question of the influence of the French Revolution. Um, sometimes in, in more simplistic text, textbooks, you basically get statements which say... France rises in revolt in 1789 and the Poles copy their example or copy France's example. It, that, that's nonsense. The, the Polish revolution and indeed the Polish revolt of 1794 have absolutely nothing to do with France. What I would say is this. Kosciuszko um, was quite a... Well, he was an extremely intelligent man. He was quite something of a military thinker. And he looked at the example of 1793 in France and he said, right, what's happening in France 
is an attempt is being made to get the people on the side, to get the people to believe that they have got something to fight for. Now, according to the Polish national myth, um, this is exactly what happened. I mean, you go to the Army Museum in Warsaw and you'll see picture after picture on the walls of, of stalwart Polish peasants marching off to war enthusiastically, armed with nothing more than scythes. In reality, again, nothing of the sort happened. What, what happened was that the Polish magnates rallied behind the revolt and used their economic power to mobilise their serfs. It was all done by effectively conscription. Um, but of course, the fact of the matter is that many of the Polish insurgents literally had nothing but scythes. So you can imagine what the result was. So is it fair to say then that we've got these two independent processes going on in Poland and in France? Um, one's slightly more, but, but sort of separate tracks, but, but proceeding in, in their own way. And, and Alex, on, on the French Revolution, tensions had been bubbling up within the Jacobin movement throughout late 1793, now coming to a head. We've got Professor David Andrus of the University of Portsmouth to take us through the, the quagmire of what's about to happen in, in January, February, March. But um, what stage would you say in general terms the French Revolution had reached? by um, the end, uh, or, or, you know, on New Year's Day, 1794. Let me repeat the cliche and say it's at the crisis stage yet again. But before I provide a more fuller answer, I do want to point out the connection, that there is a connection between the French Revolution and the Polish revolutions, in the sense that the fact that the efforts and the attention of the some European powers, namely Prussia, namely Russia, is more focused on the events in Poland is of great advantage to the French. So I think that the role the partitions played in making sure that the French Revolution prevailed is, is quite important to highlight. As for the French Revolution itself, well, um, the spring of 1794 is the very period when we see that uh, famous uh, revolution consuming or Saturn consuming its children, right? Revolution consuming its creation, really uh, playing out in front of our eyes uh, with, if nothing else, with the executions of Danton and his supporters. There, there is a very lively and complex power dynamic going on in these months of what we call in general the terror it's it's not a, a sort of single uniform phenomenon it actually is quite complex in in the later months of 1793 through to december of that year a lot of quite uncoordinated efforts have been going on by different radical groups pursuing their own agendas pursuing their own initiative out across france it, in pursuit of the, the general goal of kind of, of winning against the counter-revolution in, in various ways we can come back to. Um, what happens at the end of 1793 is a move by the Committee of Public Safety as, as the body which is you know, formally charged by the National Convention, you know, formally charged by the only kind of national authority that exists, um, to take control of this situation more generally, to limit and cut back on the, the autonomy of everyone else in France to sort of be revolutionary as they see fit. 
um, and that comes in with the the law of, of the 14th of free mayor which is in december of that year establishing a you know, uniform network of national agents reporting back directly to central authority cutting back on the independent powers of representatives on mission who've been roaming the country organizing things as they see fit clarifying the idea that there should be a sort of single national effort so this is putting the authority of the committee of public safety and the convention back at the heart of things um, but it's it's also therefore intensifying conflict with many of those other radical revolutionaries who don't necessarily want that authority to be centralized who are um, deeply deeply suspicious that everyone except them is actually a counter-revolutionary and this this is one of the, the fundamental dynamics of this period so what we're seeing here then is a situation where power has been centralized but in doing so the tensions have been ratcheted up yet another way and these are structural tensions but also tensions between personalities and i suppose the factions and the various interest groups in france and in paris particularly at the time is, is that about right Absolutely. What's what's happened over the preceding six months, you know, since since the terrible time of the summer of 1793, when everything seemed to be collapsing, the Vendée federalism, the foreign war is all going badly. Um, an enormous amount of energy has been put into to rectifying that situation, to to finally, you know, defeating the Vendean army, to recapturing Lyon and Marseille and Toulon. Um, but in, in that process, these different groups of revolutionaries, um, some who've been sent out from the Sanculot movement in Paris, some who've been sent out as representatives on mission, some who've been sent out as other kinds of agents, they've all rubbed against each other quite harshly. Um, for example, particularly, there's a, there's a very strong tension arising um, between the, the, the sort of a agents of the sans-culotte movement um, as, as a political tendency which has taken over um, the government of Paris, the municipality, the commune, has also taken over the war ministry. So is it Hébert we're talking about here? Hébert is, is one of the figures involved in this as a, as a journalist. Um, he himself officially is only the uh, the deputy prosecutor of the Paris Commune. So there is a, there is a mayor of Paris ahead uh, above him. There is um, a war minister Bouchot, who is part of this movement. But they are they are they're a general movement of people who've taken on this um, ultra radical sans-culotte identity um, and sent some of their fellows out as as leaders, as colonels and generals, to fight the war against the Vendée. Uh, where it turns out that, that being a sans-culotte, being able to make a lot of noise about being a sort of roughy-tufty patriot, doesn't make any difference if you're no good at leadership, at tactics, at fighting a war. And, and some really sharp hostilities get generated between this sans-culotte leadership and some of the representatives on mission who've been sent out simultaneously to organise that war effort. And, and have seen the sans-culotte leaders make a complete hash of it for six months. So by the end of 1793 into the beginning of 1794, there are really strong reasons why um, these, these different elements of the, the sort of the, the radical Republican terrorist movement uh, really start to dislike and distrust each other. Other things start to roll into this, the, the sans-culottes and some, some representatives start pressing for de-Christianisation, for attacking not just the Catholic Church as an institution, but religion as a concept, 
which is seen as being too divisive by others, by both Danton and Robespierre, for example. They both oppose this. Well, that was what I wanted to ask. What are people like Danton and Robespierre thinking? You know, they're in government, as it were, more or less, in the, the, these opening months of 1794. And Is it the case that they're recognising that there's going to have to be some sort of reckoning that's coming, whether they like it or not? Well, it it is, again, a a complex and fluid situation. Danton, for example, withdraws from politics for for quite a lot of late 1793 and is, is drawn back in at the end of the year, partly because he and his friends are being accused of of corruption by more radical people. And one of the reasons he has to come back is to sort of contest those allegations. But at the same time, other stra- other parties within this very complex coalition are starting to accuse some of the Sonculot ultra-radicals of actually being corrupt. There are moments of dramatic denunciation around the end of the year in the National Convention of what some of these leaders have done. And you end up in a position in the first sort of month or two of 1794 where general purging is put on the agenda officially that all local authorities, all local Jacobin clubs are instructed to kind of gather themselves together and purify themselves, do what 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 you know what, what 20th century Maoists would call self-criticism, identify people whose behaviour hasn't been impeccable, identify people that other people are suspicious about, and boot them out. And and some of these people end up just under house arrest, some of them end up actually being guillotined so there's a there's a whole dynamic of suspicion arising um, spreading across the country that the people who are actually undertaking the terror don't trust each other increasingly think that that the sort of slowness of victory has something to do with counter-revolutionary subversion and as this is spreading generally across the country um, it's also creeping closer and closer to to the, the the significant revolutionary leaders themselves. Well, this is completely jaw-dropping, um, although given the course of the French Revolution so far, I suppose it's it's not surprising. It's just, it's, it just seems to get to an unsustainable level of craziness and then just ratchets up another notch. Uh, and I, I suppose that's what we're seeing here. So maybe, I think we ought to get on to... Uh, what happens in this three months then? Because Danton, Demoulin are, are arrested and uh, it looks like that there's action being taken. Yes, well, this this is this is how this situation is, is, is resolved, as it were, in the short term. It, it's resolved practically by, by shutting down both groups who, who've been agitating against each other, that, that Danton becomes the figurehead uh, for a group which which generally are referred to as as the indulgence, and that that their agenda, very broadly speaking, is to somehow bring about a pacification, some kind of of negotiation that would somehow end this apparently intractable war with everyone else except France. That is seen by people much further to the left, the the radicals of of the of the sans culotte movement, as a counter-revolutionary intention in itself. Meanwhile, those indulgents see those radical sans-culottes as, as lunatics, um, as idiots, 
Um, and this is where, where Camille Desmoulins, as a, as a journalist and a writer, comes into it, that he, he produces this newspaper called The Old Cordelier and only publishes half a dozen or so editions. But one of the things he's doing in there is very kind of rudely and snarkily mocking and satirising the stupidity of the sans-culotte movement and how counterproductive it is and how dangerous it is, um, which, of course, do does nothing at all to, to ease any of these tensions. Um, and we see a situation where, where Robespierre, for example, by about February 1794, is, is increasingly convinced that both of these parties, what he calls ultras and citras, those who want to go too far, those who don't want to go far enough, are enemies of the revolution. So here we see Robespierre the moderate. <laughs> well, that, that, I mean, that's, that's the extraordinary truth of it. Um, you know, if, 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 if you allow that sort of moderatism is something they actually accuse people like Danton of, that, that ever since the Girondins have been around and been got rid of, the idea of being moderate itself is, is, is seen as counter-revolutionary. But, but in effect, Robespierre and the other members of the Committee of Public Safety end up deciding the, the only way forward is to chart a middle course between these groups that have, that have got this explosive tension between them. But that middle course will involve openly accusing both Danton and his friends and Hébert and his friends of being conspirators, of being counter-revolutionary and using those charges, which are a, a huge muddle of the plausible and the implausible, using those charges to send them to the guillotine as counter-revolutionaries. Um, effectively, you know, cutting off the possibility of there being any dissent at all, as as long as this this terrorist mentality persists. And so, how successful is Robespierre in doing that by the end of this three months? So, on thirty first March seventeen ninety four, how secure is Robespierre after all of this this action? Well, the the interesting thing again to to remember about what's going on is that um, Robespierre is only one of the figures involved in this. He's not the leader of the Committee of Public Safety. In fact, although in February he makes this, this famous speech about terror and virtue and all sorts of other things, um, condemning these different factions, it's actually some of the other members of the Committee of Public Safety who have to um, prod him into agreeing to, to the attack on the Ebertiste and particularly the Dantoniste. Because when, when they attack the Dantoniste, they are attacking actual members of the convention. You know, that, that's one of the structural differences between them. They're, they're actually challenge, challenging the, you know, the, the rights of actual representatives of the people and, and actual heroes of the revolution. I mean, that, that's one thing. I mean, Dodton is genuinely a hero of the revolution. And so Robespierre has scruples here to overcome. But the argument is essentially pragmatic that this political infighting is stopping France making progress with, with defeating its actual enemies. Robespierre himself um, is, is, is poised to become more influential, poised to take on a stronger central role in, in you know, directing the, the process of rooting out counter-revolution. Um, but that in itself will, will be a, a poisoned chalice because it will make him more isolated. And ult ultimately, Robespierre is going to find himself really quite isolated in the months ahead.
David Andrus there, and it'll be Marisa Linton returning to the podcast to describe what happens next in the French Revolution in episode 10, coming next week. Um, but for now, I suppose the question to ask you, Charles, is what choices did Robespierre have? What was his position by the end of this three months? Obviously, Robespierre is going to move against both right and, and left. Hébert and Danton both end up with, with their friends under the knife of the guillotine. Um, the problem is that it doesn't just isolate Robespierre, it also makes him, him and his friends look increasingly dangerous. Any, everybody in French politics was beginning to get a little bit worried. Who was going to be next? And that means that when the military crisis passes, as in effect it, would ha it already had, um, Robespierre is going to be in a very vulnerable position indeed, because basically he will have outlived his usefulness. Now, Charles, we also talked in the last episode a lot about the Vendée. So um, the pacification, I suppose, is is complete, would we say? It was so brutal and horrendous, really, in the last three months. But now, January, February, March 1794, how have things developed further? Well, I mean, to be honest, pa the pacification isn't complete. Um, OK. I mean, you can, you, can, you can go around burning villages and shooting people and the like, but you can't burn every village and you can't shoot everyone. Um, the, the imposition of this, this violent terror... Um, and it was truly a dreadful affair, um, just stokes up hatred in the Vendée. And um, the Vendée is never really pacified. What happens is that the guerrilla war, or rather the, 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 the Grand Guerre du Vendée, um, this, this period of, of regular warfare in 1793, that slides into a much lower level guerrilla conflict with small guerrilla bands operating in rural hideouts, har harassing Republican officials, National Guards. And we should remember that it's not just the Vendée which is affected by this. In, in, across across the, the River Loire in, in Brittany proper, you have the Chouanery, which is essentially, uh, again, a, a counter-revolutionary movement, if you like, or to, look, to view it another way, movement of, of peasant protest, but it's always much more low level. It's, it's small groups based in their home villages, sallying out at night to, to take out a couple of unpopular Republican officials or rubber convoy, and then, and then melting back into the population. It's much more classic guerrilla war stuff. And there is so much, Alex, going on in France at this time, because at the same time as, as the, the, the smouldering continues, you also have the revolution trying to push through its extraordinary domestic agenda, although clearly there is a debate about the extent of that. But is there anything in particular you'd, you'd sort of point out that uh, is striking in, from this period? Absolutely. Um, there is uh, many things that we can, dis you know, we can touch upon, but two uh, really stand out in my mind. One is the determination uh, of the uh, Jacobin leaders to forge some sense of national unity. Uh, some of it is to sustain the war effort, right? You need the national unity, but some of it transcends uh, that the simple national, you know, the needs of the war. And it, uh, it is, reminds me of, of the speech, for example, that Barrère uh, gave, which reflected this debate about the nature of nationalism, nation, uh, uh, nature of national identity. 
It is during this debate, for example, that Barrere and others emphasize the need to teach what they call the most beautiful language of Europe, French, to every citizens of French Republic, irrespective of whether they were French, Bretons, or others. In fact, more than anything else, the Jacobins looked at non-French languages as suspicious by their very nature. In one of the speeches, Barrere, for example, uh, has this, one, this remarkable passage in which he says, Federalism and superstition speak Breton. And that re reflects what uh, Charles was saying about the events in the Western France. Barrere continues to say that immigration and hatred of the Republic speaks German. Counter-revolution speaks Italian, and fanaticism speaks Basque. And therefore, in exchange of this multiplicity of, uh, uh, view of languages, they needed one national language, French. A related kind of narrative to it is the idea of using this process to create a greater social justice. It's, it's something that pervades this Jacobin period, but especially finds itself during this uh, spring of 94 in the so-called Vantos Decrees. Ah, yes, these Vantos Decrees, which I think this is, um, we're looking at property redistribution. Is that is that what this is about? Indeed, Alex. This is a way for the Jacobins to both co-opt the masses to the cause of revolution by showing that they have vested interests, something to fight for. And what can be better than a piece of property? The question, however, is where to find piece of property? How can I encourage Alex you to go and fight for the revolution unless I give you a house, a land, something too actually tangible that you can look at? And that's where the Vantos decrees in February and March of 1794 uh, declared that uh, the property of the politically unreliable and you define now, Alex, how what the <laughs> what the political unreliable is uh, will be now subject con confiscation. Now I remind you that the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen and the Constitution declared sacredness of private ownership. However, in this debate, Saint Just and others pointed out that they are not trying to take away that sacred right. No, no, they said, "quote Properties of patriots are sacred." But it's the goods of the traitors that are subject to confiscation. And therefore, those who are found unreliable, politically suspicious, or outright treasonous have to lose all their property, which then will be redistributed to the poor citizens, those who earn their right to have wealth and happiness because they are politically reliable. Happiness is the new idea in Europe. St. Jus famously proclaimed. Right, so we've got a lot going on, lots of layers. You've got the politics in Paris itself. You've got the smouldering Vendée, the Chouannerie, and, and, and elsewhere as well. You've got these social reforms which are taking place, and uh, what I'm looking to segue to now is, is the military side, and, and we're going to talk to Professor Rafe Blaufarb of Florida State University, who we last heard in episode two, but just to, before we come to him, I might very quickly ask you, Charles, for maybe just 30 seconds on conscription. The, the situation in 93 was very different, 1792. Now we're in 1794. This is another layer that's rumbling on across France, this, this problem. So just before we come to, to Rafe on um, these big changes to the French military, what, what, what was the mood in France when, when it comes to conscription by this stage? Bluntly, ferociously hostile. 
there were people who were enthusiastic for the revolution. Um, there were areas of France um, which had genuinely benefited from the revolution, particularly, for example, areas around Paris. Um, the Boast, which is uh, the plain between Paris and Orléans. In that sort of area, where people had done well out of the revolution, there is some willingness to come forward and fight. So there's, there's little, I don't think there were many volunteers, but there's little actual resistance to conscription. So in place, in some places, conscription works. But in a much, much wider area of France, conscription is totally hated. Uh, there are constant disorders, constant riots, huge numbers of deserters, um, men pulling every string they possibly can to stay out and, and often re resorting to self-mutilation, cutting off their trigger fingers so they couldn't be soldiers. <laughs> So here's Rafe Blaufarb. He's here to explain why this three months was a big moment in the creation of the mass army. But really, this was the second part of a process which had begun in 1793. And what that first act had, had, had consisted of was the decision to unify the disparate battalions of National Guard volunteers and regular army soldiers into uh, into composite units called demi-brigades. Um, right. Until that point, uh, every na every National Guard volunteer battalion was an was a um, was an isolated unit wandering about uh, the, the battlefield. Um, uh, there were <laughs> there were over five hundred of the of the of these individual battalions not attached to any uh, real larger tactical military unit, um, and. To make matters worse, these volunteer battalions had a completely different um, supply system, pay scale, different uniforms than the regular army um, than the regular army soldiers. So the decision is taken in in I believe February 1793 to create new units called demi brigades to be formed of two battalions of National Guard volunteers and one battalion of regular army uh, of the old regular army the idea yes. that the regulars would provide the volunteers with administrative expertise and military expertise like training and that the the and that the national guard volunteers would provide uh, the regulars with uh, with the patriotic citizen spirit however these uh, these units these new units called demi brigades uh, they weren't fully blended because each of the three battalions that that formed them retained uh, its own distinct identity, which is to say that the regular army battalion conducted advancement within its own ranks and did not uh, did not uh, did not mix with the other uh, with the with the two volunteer battalions, each of which in turn retained its own distinctive uh, local identity. Right, and I've got that um, a typical demi-brigade would, would deploy six artillery pieces, 96 officers, and 3,300 men. That's the sort of scale we're talking about here. That, that's, that's correct. Each battalion is about 1,000 soldiers. That's correct. Okay, yeah. The decision is taken in February 1794, as you mentioned, to pursue this unification of, uh, uh, of the French army by, uh, by mixing up, by blending 
the men of these different battalions within each demi-brigade. That is to say, to shift some of the soldiers from the volunteer battalions in a given demi-brigade to the regular battalion and vice versa until each of the three battalions lost its previous distinctive identity and all of the all of the soldiers became simply Republican soldiers with one uniform, one identity, one cause. Did it work? It worked very well because these are the, <laughs> these are the forces that uh, that turned the tide in 1794, and uh, in that year begin to go on the offensive. And the man who introduced this was was Carnot. I, I wonder whether you might say a little bit about about him. Yeah, Carnot, Carnot is a, an interesting character. He is uh, in in 1793 1794. He is a deputy to the National Convention. Um, and he becomes a member of the Committee of Public Safety, the executive committee that, that pretty much runs the war effort and, and much else in France during, during a late 1793 and uh, uh, through, the, through the middle of 1794. Carnot uh, is the military expert on the committee. He, he is the one who, who takes most of the military decisions, whether they be uh, operational, that is, c- conducting, uh, designing campaign plans or logistical, ordering certain kinds of deployments or the movement of supplies or pay. He's essentially in charge of the military effort. And for that reason, he is known, even at the time, as the organizer of the victory. One important thing to know about him is that he is an old regime military professional. Uh, he is not a civilian. He doesn't come out of nowhere he was a military engineer before the revolution. The military engineer corps, like the artillery corps, was uh, much more open to commoners joining it than the, than the other branches of the military, the infantry, the cavalry, uh, the navy. Uh, so Carnot is that, that rare beast. He is an experienced uh, commoner officer from the old regime military. And from probably its most demanding technical branch of the engineers. And he brings that spirit of rationality and rigor to the job of organizing the French forces uh, in 1794. And do we want to say anything here about the core system or the semaphore that was developed at the time? Um, Yeah. Um, Carnot, one of the things Carnot and the generals begin to do is they experiment with uh, larger and larger formations on the battlefield. Um, oh right, okay. So this in, is a new thing that they. Were, yeah. I suppose if you're going from just little demi brigades running around by themselves, anything's yeah. progress. Yeah. Um, in a in typical in in the mid 18th century, armies had uh, marched and fought as single, un- unarticulated blocks. There'd there'd be the army would be commanded by the general or the prince, and it would all be there under that one general or prince. It wouldn't have. Uh, it wouldn't be internally articulated in ways that might make it flexible. What uh, what the core system does that, uh, well, even before then, the system of divisions and then core, it is to it is to divide armies into articulated units that can be detached from the main body of the army and can be tasked with carrying out independent uh, functions. What that allows a general to do by having his army divided into multiple corps uh, is to pursue several objectives at once instead of just plotting around with a single, uh, yes. single blunt monolithic uh, army. 
And was this something that the French were more advanced at than the uh, than the Allied nations, the Austrians, the Prussians? Absolutely, the French introduced the core system, and it, it's really Napoleon who ends up perfecting it. Although it's experimented with, um, as you suggest, during this time of, of early Republican military resurgence. Right. Right. In addition, this this has been perhaps less remarked that um, Carnot, at the height of the war effort he's directing is supervising the simultaneous operations of seven field armies operating on different fronts. And um, he is arguably the first military leader to, 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 to effectively combine into a single strategic plan the operation of, of, of so many different armies on so many different fronts. That is, each the effort of each single army will be directed toward achieving an overall goal. Really, and that hadn't been done before. I mean, that's that's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, wow. yeah, it's it's a very big deal. It's we're moving toward modern warfare. Perhaps one of the reasons why it hadn't been done before is that armies before had never been anywhere near the size of the French armies in 1794. The French have have three quarters of a million men actually under arms uh, by mid-1794. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's more than twice as much as a, a typical European army would have fielded uh, before that. So the French have the luxury of having multiple armies. They have so many soldiers. So that's Rafe Blaufarb there. Uh, Charles, let me ask, Carno, was he the Allenbrook of the 1790s, do you think? I mean, it's, it's grand strategy of a kind, or at least grand strategy compared to what, what we'd seen before, perhaps. Y- yes, I, I think so. Um, I, do, I do sometimes get the feeling that, that Carno is, is rather talked up. Um, that his, his influence, or at least his success, is, is exaggerated. He's called the organiser of victory. That I think is fair when it comes to things like logistics, when it, when it comes to things like arming the armies. All of these men had to be given muskets. In, you know, in 1793, some of them had gone into, into battle clutching nothing but, but, but pikes. I mean, nine foot long spears. Carnot actually makes a huge contribution in terms of logistics, in terms of armament, in terms of equipment. Um, at that sort of level, he's incredibly important. I am not certain that his strategic influence was as great as is being made out. But uh, I, I do stress, I am, it's just a matter of time, not certain. I think we should actually ask, is it OK, Alex, to ask you about the other side the allies and because you know they need to crack on and they need to get on with this and put this french revolution back in its bottle uh, okay they've shilly shallied around a bit but they need to pull themselves together so uh, and they have a plan they have an ambitious plan in this quarter to to take the revolution out to, to get to paris but how realistic was that plan would you say yeah, <laughs> yeah i'd say as realistic as all the previous plans uh, not much um, again, but what else could they have done? That's the question I always, you know, what would I would have done in their shoes? Uh, once this uh, initial invasion of 92, 93 grinds to a halt, 
and we go into what can be referred to as the war of attrition, right? The maneuvers and you know the seesaw battle in, in the frontier land. It's hard to envision the coalition coming up with a breakthrough, this decisive breakthrough that would actually end the war. France, with the remarkable efficiency and ruthlessness, were able to create now by spring of '94 a military machine that, no matter how much you know we complain about it, that was capable of sustaining. Uh, the armies in the field and supplying sufficient manpower and resources to keep fighting on. And that's a, 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 a huge uh, obstacle, especially in the context when some key members of coalition are not as interested in persecuting the you know war against France at 100%. If you are Prussians, what advantage really this war uh, against France offers you? What tangible advantage? On the other hand, if you shift your attention to the east and commit your resources, your armies, your kind of political will to the partition of Poland, the rewards are immediate. So let's zoom out further, uh, even further from Europe to the Caribbean. And throughout season one, we'd follow developments on Saint-Domingue, the most lucrative of all of the Caribbean colonies and the one mired in fighting following the slave revolt that began in 1793. And this is a really significant three months for those like Toussaint Louverture who realised they might have France on their side after all as the National Convention votes to abolish slavery. So, for this episode's third interview, here's Christy Pekikaro, Associate Professor at George Mason University, back once again. Uh, but before analysing the situation in this three months, I asked her to briefly describe the history of Saint-Domingue to contextualise the magnitude of the events that were unfolding in early 1794. The Caribbean itself turned out to be a major disappointment from the perspective of the original pursuit of the three G's of, of gold, glory, and God. Uh, there was no meaningful quantity of precious metals, and indigenous groups such as the Tainos and the Caribs died off in droves due to infectious diseases brought over from Europe. So uh, the decimation of land uh, peoples, and this is something we just uh, need to remember, that, uh, that the decimation of land peoples and cultures in the Americas is, is impossible for us to conceive, uh, but always critical to recall. And it, it really played a role here in that disappointment of the Caribbean. And this was in the 16th and 17th centuries that, that, this, ha that this happened? Yes, exactly. In these yeah, first, yeah. yes. 16th centuries, uh, a lot of this is occurring. Um, and uh, folks are realizing quite early on in the 16th century that the, the, the dearth of possibilities for mining uh, was going to, to fuel the development of, um, was, uh, of a different type of system, indeed the plantation system in the Caribbean. No mining, so let's plant. Um, right. From which very, and in this very early on, uh, forced labor was involved. Um, and and uh, folks often, you know, forget about this as well, that indigenous peoples and indentured servants from Europe worked the land. Um, right. But as, yes, so that was the original setup. But as we know well, starting with the Portuguese in 1526, the Atlantic slave trade began the process of transporting millions of humans as cargo from the African continent to the Americas. 
Um, so really, chattel slavery, the plantation system, and colonization expanded together in the 17th and 18th centuries. And cash crops like sugar and coffee transformed European economies and European tastes, uh, we must note. At the start of this period, so you've got Sontenatz, the commissioner, who has declared um, that slavery is abolished, but it's all very well him saying it. He needs to get the National Assembly to agree. And by the start of 1794, the the work is underway, that that the National Assembly is able to consider this, uh, having heard the news about what's going on um, across the other side of the Atlantic. So this was the period, wasn't it, when the National Assembly were were being asked to consider this question, what arguments were used to persuade them to agree to abolish slavery? Yes. So they indeed needed uh, persuading because, um, in fact, when the news of Sontonax's abolition of slavery in Saint-Domingue arrived uh, back in France, it actually sparked indignation and hostility among a number of the revolutionary deputies of this radical national convention. So this always makes me smile. So so much for liberté, égalité, fraternité. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This doesn't apply here. Um, and the other difficulty was that so many of the champions of abolition and the rights of, um, of free men of color affiliated with the Société des Amis des Noirs, which was the Society of the Friends of Blacks modeled actually on the English society, they had either fled or had met their maker under the blade of the guillotine. Uh, right. So no Lafayette, no Brissot, no Condorcet um, in order to support uh, the, the, the passing of a decree by the National Convention. And what really transforms this uh, are the arguments made by the three deputies who come from Saint-Domingue. Uh, they're, they're sort of uh, uh, called in a jolly way the, the tricolor delegation uh, because you have Jean-Baptiste Bellet, who was a formerly enslaved uh, man who had been bought in and transported from Gauré, off of Senegal, and he is the first black deputy to take a seat in the convention. Oh, wow, wow. Yes, yes, and there are beautiful portraits uh, uh, of Billy. Um, he's just an, a monumental figure. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Mills uh, um, is uh, a free man of, of mixed race, and then uh, Louis-Pierre Dufaille, who was a Frenchman uh, born in Paris. So these deputies um, arrive and, and make uh, several arguments um, with different elements elements. First, uh, they go for the ideological. So they, they contend that this was really the only just and true way to fulfill the core principles of the revolution. But they supplement this perspective with reassurances regarding the upshot of a general emancipation. So they explain that the abolition of slavery would not diminish the economic productivity or prosperity of Saint-Domingue and other territories. <sighs> yes. Mm, a key factor, yeah. Right, that had been functioning within the system of chattel slavery. And they also guaranteed, somewhat dubiously, uh, that all of the black and mixed race uh, men uh, of Saint-Domingue and other colonies would pledge their fidelity to France. Oh upon my goodness. That is so, did they really? Yes, and, they and, did. and was it believed? Well, listen, it was. Uh, this was met with tremendous enthusiasm and and sort of uh, uh, funny enough, it, it turned out to hold some truth since Toussaint Louverture actually left the Spanish to take up arms with the French uh, after hearing of the convention's decree just a few months later. Uh, so, uh, so liberté, égalité and fraternité were once again the order of the day. And uh, on uh, February 4th, 1794, the decree was passed. 
And, and what did the world make of this decision? I mean, this is a massive moment, isn't it, in, in the history of, well, the world. Um, uh, how did the world greet it? Oh, it's such a huge question. And I'm sure you know, it depends on who you ask. Uh, yes. <laughs> European colonists and slaveholders around the world, uh, these were giant empires. They were in Africa, they are in South Asia. Uh, so regardless of the racial heritage of these colonists and slaveholders, they were horrified. Um, and likewise, European imperial governments were uh, extraordinarily dismayed. Um, However, abolitionist groups like the Quakers in England and America and the members of the British Society for affecting the abolition of, of the slave trade were overjoyed. Um, and of course, the voices we don't hear enough about, um, those of the enslaved themselves, this decree uh, uh, ostensibly freed them uh, and fanned the, the flames uh, of freedom in the hearts of enslaved populationships, uh, populations throughout the world. Um, so a, 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 a rainbow of reactions, but none of them sort of weak, uh, all of them explosively strong uh, reactions to this incredible moment. Well, I suppose one um, a force that wouldn't have been particularly uh, stirred would be the, the, the British um, who have been uh, uh, dispatched to try and uh, capture uh, islands. Um, the British, um, you know, were looking, were continuing in the same vein as in the previous year, I suppose, in terms of being expansionistic. But of course, the great problem they faced was was yellow fever. Already in these early months of 1794, the the toll um, on the British um, service personnel sent over there was was really horrendous. Yes, it was shocking and. You know, this was this was so much uh, the case in uh, in wars of the period uh, more generally that it was not battle that took the lives uh, of most soldiers, uh, and in this case of the British uh, serving in Saint Domingue, it was so often the case uh, that uh, the implacable advance of infectious diseases, um, and here yellow fever, uh, dubbed the black vomit by the British, uh, is responsible for taking most of the lives. Um, so, uh, so indeed, most of the military men serving in Saint-Domingue uh, in the British forces died of the disease. And the numbers uh, are uh, sort of staggering. Just within two months of disembarkation in Saint-Domingue, 40 officers and 600 soldiers are already dead uh, of the yellow fever. And uh, of the 7,000 men serving under uh, General uh, Charles No Flint uh, Gray, uh, 5,000 perished from the disease. It's extraordinary, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask in the final, I mean, that's the experience of, of the British soldiers there, but there's so many different groups going on. And just if, if I can ask you now, um, just a simple question as to, what what was the state of play by the end of uh, March uh, 1794 in, in, in the Caribbean? How were things going by then? Yes, well, uh, battle is uh, continuing and, uh, and the British uh, have by no means uh, moved into a cease and desist mode. Uh, on the contrary, they are continuing uh, the fight and increasing their investments. Uh, despite the odds, uh, and so uh, and so, war uh, rages on, uh, and uh, you know there a, a large shift uh, happens with uh, Toussaint Louverture moving to the south.
side of the French. It's a sort of decisive moment, um, but we are still far off uh, from having any end to this story, from the departure of the British and the Spanish, uh, and from the ultimate end of this tale, which is the Haitian Revolution um, and independence in 1804. That was Christy Prokikoro there. And Charles, we've discussed before that there is a debate over whether the British were being purely imperialist here. It's often said that um, you know, the, the British decision to send to, to send large numbers of troops to the West Indies is proof positive that Britain was was um, basically exploiting the war to push an imperialistic agenda. Um, that is very very short sighted. Capturing French colonies was a very very good way of striking at France, particularly Saint Domingue, which was so so. Um, prosperous and, and wealthy and so forth. Um, capturing French colonies swelled British income, at least in theory. It reduced French income. It also eliminated French bases from which the French could have attacked, attacked neighbouring British colonies, could have restocked, resupplied um, commerce traders and things like that. So it's a totally normal thing to do. It does fit in with a war in Europe. The problem is that Saint-Domingue was an absolute quagmire. It's not just a little island like Guadeloupe, for example, or St. Lucia. It, it, it is quite a big territory. It's got extensive mountains, extensive forests, and it's got a vile climate, which is basically the home to all sorts of tropical diseases, including, most importantly, yellow fever. So Saint-Domingue itself, as you say, is a real quagmire. Um, but the fact is that there are really significant developments here which are reverberating around the world. What were the views of uh, on this question of the emancipation of the slaves? I mean, it sort of hesitate to break it up in terms of by, you know, uh, black, white, mixed race. But the fact is that these were the key groups in political terms, we might say, on the island at the time. Yeah, I mean, they... they... <laughs> This was a reality. It was it was a racially structured society. You had the the Grand Blanc, the, the planters at the top. Then then you had the Petit Blanc, who were people like shopkeepers, some artisans, um, minor officials. Um, then you had the the numerically quite important mixed race group uh, who, who were essentially half Afro Caribbean. And, and, and half white or, or, or mixtures thereof. Um, and then you have the, the, the slaves at the bottom. Now, the, 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 obviously, the, the Grand Blanc and to a lesser extent, the Petit Blanc are, are frightened by emancipation. They feel they're going to be swamped. That also applies to the people of mixed race. They had some status in colonial society not much status but they had more status than slaves did and and they knew that they were hated in many instances by the slaves because they were seen as being collaborators and you know they staffed the island's militia and things like that and so in consequence emancipation wins france friends but it also 
wins France enemies and it sets up a situation in which you are going to have the most terrible racial wars in Saint-Domingue between the mixed race population on the one hand and the black population on the other. That doesn't mean to say that emancipation was a bad thing. Of course not. But it did have certain very tragic consequences as well. Okay, so we've got so much uh, going on in this episode, uh, whether that's in the the French Revolution uh, or in indeed the, the French army and the, the war itself. We've covered off developments in Saint-Domingue. But Alex, there's even more going on in the world at this time. And of course, I forgot Poland, <laughs> which we will return to in the, in the rest of this uh, season. But what about what, what? What else should we pick out that's really significant at this time? That's relevant, but maybe hasn't been talked about so much in this in this uh, context. Yes, um, to stay within my uh, favorite kind of uh, topic of expanding the confines of this period, the there are important developments on the other side of the world from the Caribbean in in, in Iran, which are directly kind of relevant to our own conversation. Since the collapse of the Safavid uh, Empire in 1722, Iran experienced a very turbulent uh, five decades uh, of internal struggle, economic malaise, uh, and, and a lot of uh, tribal infighting. And at one point, it, was, uh, it came to experience certain uh, uh, stability under the leadership of Karim Khan of Zand. But after his death in 1779, Iran is back into this political turmoil. And 1794 is the crucial moment, therefore, because out of this turbulence comes this maverick leader, Aga Muhammad Khan Qajar, who that year, starting in the spring, is, is mopping up all his rivals. And in fact, in, in, in 94, he finishes his reconquest or consolidation of power by destroying his last major rival, uh, Lord Fali Khan Zand. And with the destruction uh, of, of Zand, with the capture in 94 of, of the stronghold of Kerman's province, Maha Mohammed Khan has effectively consolidated power in Iran and established the Qajar dynasty, which will then, during the Napoleonic era, deal with the British interest, French interest. Right? We've, we've all seen the long-bearded Fatali Shah of Iran uh, who had the misfortune of dealing with the Russian and British and uh, French imperial uh, narratives. Well, Father Ali Shah is the nephew of the Aga Muhammad Khan who comes to power in 1794. Right, so we need to stick a pin on in this, as they say on the excellent Lover's Hole podcast, um, <laughs> uh, because this is you know, clearly going to be something, this is, this is the start of another storyline that we'll, we're going to be following. Um, the, the situation in Iran and, and the Middle East in this period. Charles, do, do you have any reflections on um, on the Middle East and, and the state of play at, at this time? I'm, I'm reminded of, of a statement by the late 19th century, early 20th century um, British historian John Holland Rose. Um, and in fact, I was so struck by this that I, I, I actually use it at the beginning of my um, Napoleon's Wars. Holland Rose actually says, between 1800 and 1815, the history of the world is the history of Napoleon Bonaparte. And 
and I spend a page or so just pulling this apart completely. And it's the same with the French Revolution. The, the, the history of the French Revolution is not the history of the world, and it's not even the history of Europe. We, you know, we need to take a step back from the details of who is being nasty to who in Paris and see things from a completely different perspective. And that, that means taking powers like Iran, yes, certainly, and, and, and a bit closer to home, the Ottoman Empire, very seriously. In, in my books, I, I've, to the limited extent that I can, I spent a lot, a lot of time talking about the, the Ottoman Empire, pointing out that in the Ottoman Empire, first of all, there are serious structural problems which, which are undermining its ability to stand firm against Russian aggression. And secondly, and much more tentatively, the start of a process of reform um, which you can almost, almost compare with enlightened absolutism in Europe. The, a move towards a stronger state, a move towards a modern army, very, very tentative, very slow progress, and indeed it's, it's going to be short-circuited. But the, the point is that the story that we are looking at cannot just be seen in narrow French or even Christian Europe terms. I mean, because, of course, the Ottoman Empire was a European power. And I think that's the joy of having the podcast like this one, where we can both uh, explore the traditional historiography, traditional narrative with its focus on Europe or French or British uh, narrative, but also diverge and, and highlight areas where uh, more research or more emphasis needs to be made. There, it reminds me of the wonderful book that uh, Pascal Ferg just published just a couple of years ago. Uh, on, on Twitter, I remember, uh, Charles, you had this debate on with a, uh, or a, a discussion with a person uh, who said, what else can be said new, right, about Nepal, uh, revolutionary Napoleonic era? Well, Pascal Ferge's book was about the French extension of French Revolution to the Ottoman world. And that's a pioneering kind of world uh, work showing the extent of interconnection between the Ottoman interests, Ottoman political and cultural developments, and the French Revolution. And so uh, issues like this only highlight how, how much more we need to do to fully understand this period. Well, there'll be a lot more to come, that's for sure. And we're going to try and follow the developments as they happen through 1794 and 1795 in this series and then beyond that. But also, yeah, very much trying to to, to take note. Um, but let's wrap this episode up by asking you both to assess the situation as always at the end of the quarter so 31st March 1794 and I suppose there's a question you know what's going on in the world where has, where have things moved on to then our central narratives are around the prospects of the well we have you know it's a, the question is what are we trying to sum up I think it, we're trying to sum up what, all, all the stories that we've started so far is it possible to, to, to synthesize and, and just try and say this is the state of the general mood, perhaps, um, uh, that the world would have been in by the end of March? Clearly, clearly, armies go into winter quarters. You know, w winter is not a good time to fight for the most part. Therefore, the fronts have gone fairly quiet and the generals on both sides 
are waiting for the spring to get to grips with with serious operations again. Um, meanwhile, of course, in other climactic zones like the West Indies, um, fighting continues. And 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 lastly, I would again I would put in another plea just uh, to, to to say that people should realise that there are other things happening in the world which may not impinge on our story at this point but will impinge on it at some point i could i might just point out here just to, to bring in the in the united states the the infant united states in 1791 i believe the american army suffered its worst ever defeat at the hands of native americans at the Battle of Wabash. The point is that what you see in the United States is is growing pressure on the Indian lands. There's always pressure on the Indian lands, but many colonists are starting to want to head west, to head into Indian territory. And that is going to build up tensions which produce war between Britain and the United States in 1812. There, there is a backstory going on which isn't necessarily visible, but which is going on and which needs to be taken into account. OK, so uh, to sum up, Alex, um, this theme, the theme of this episode seems to be one of expanding horizons. Yes, indeed. Uh, and there are m- the, the expanding horizons that are not, you know, the horizons that are not clear-cut in many respects, because in the next episode, we'll talk about one of the crucial uh, moments of, in terms of military engagement of this period, and it is not involving land operations at all. It's actually a a naval operation that the French were able to pull, and it will not be fought on land, but rather it will involve a naval operation, and we cannot but wonder uh, in, in March whether this operation will succeed and if this crucially important, the strategic delivery of supplies will make it uh, to Europe. Will the British stop it? So the question is, will the British stop it or not? That's a good cliffhanger to end the episode. Thank you to Charles and to Alex. Thanks also to David Andrus, Rafe Blaufarb and Christy Pekikaro. Thank you to my very old friend Ben Eckersley for composing and performing all the music you've heard in this episode. There are, at the end of this quarter, 7,748 days to go until Waterloo. And I hope you'll join me for episode 10. Among my guests will be Rachel Blackman to describe the events that the British, at least, like to call the glorious first of June. For the British, their intercept squadron under Rear Admiral George Montague simply had to stop the convoy reaching Brest and make deny the French access to that vital grain convoy. 